you know, I have to say one of the um, great privileges of being a pastor is you're kind of expected to sit in the front row. And uh, when, when you sing songs like the one we just sang, you get to hear everyone's voice behind you and uh, singing that prayer, because that's really a prayer. And that's our prayer this morning, that God would continue to speak to us, that he would continue to speak to his church um, as he continues to build his church, not just in, um, in our lives, but to the ends of the earth. And this morning we continue uh, in our, our sermon series on the gospel of Mark. Uh, we're going to, and really what I consider and, and what most people who um, have studied uh, Mark say is the high point of the gospel of Mark. Uh, the entire um, gospel has been building to this passage, to this confession from the apostle Peter here uh, over the last eight chapters. And so if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. Please follow along as I read aloud. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray. Father, as we approach this supremely important text in the Gospel of Mark. Lord, we ask that you would be the one who speaks to us this morning. And as we saw last week from Mark, that we, we confess that you alone are the, the one who can open the eyes of the blind, both the physically blind and the spiritually blind. And so we ask this morning that you would increasingly open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, Lord, that we might see you more clearly. It is this confession from the Apostle Peter that you are the Christ upon which our hope lies. And so we say, speak, O Lord, till your church is built, until the earth is filled with your glory. And Lord, we ask that this morning you would speak in such a way that your kingdom is more fully established in each of our hearts. It's in your precious and holy and powerful name that we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned uh, earlier, uh, this is a moment that the Gospel of Mark has been building toward this entire uh, eight chapters, the first eight chapters of this book. Everything that Mark has been writing about, everything that he has included in the first eight chapters is, is pointing to this question, who is Jesus? And today, 
millennia later, thousands of years later, this is a question that, that uh, is no less divisive today than it was when Jesus first asked that question of his disciples. If you were to ask a group of people, who is Jesus, you would probably get a dozen different answers. And so as we att- turn our, our attention to this passage this morning, we have to ask ourselves the exact same question that Jesus tested his disciples with, that he, he leveled at his disciples. Who do we say that Jesus is? Now, from this moment on in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see a distinct change. Everything that, is, has taken, uh, that has been mentioned up to this point is, is focused on this question of who is Jesus. And, and after this moment, while there are still miracles in the Gospel of Mark, they are less frequent. The focus in Mark's gospel, just as as Jesus' focus turns, so also Mark's focus now turns to focus on the cross. The Apostle Peter has just given us the answer to this question, who is Jesus, when he says, you are the Christ. And immediately after that, we see Jesus begin to explain what that means, that the Christ must go to the cross. And that is the main point of this text this morning. That's what Jesus wanted his disciples to be aware of thousands of years ago. That's what, what he wants us to be aware of this morning as well. It's simply this. The king will only be crowned through the cross. The king will only be crowned through the cross. As Peter has declared, Jesus is the king. That's what the Christ is, that the king. But his coronation will not come with a victory parade, but instead with the scorn of those he came to save. The king will be crowned, but it will only come through the cross. Now, our text shouts this truth if we are willing to listen to it. And so as we jump into this passage, we're just going to spend time breaking it apart, looking first at at this idea of the king, this confession of Peter in 27 through 30. And then we're going to look at, at the significance of what Jesus being the king means by looking at the cross in verses 31 through 33. The king will be crowned, but only through the cross. So let's jump in first by looking at the king, starting in verse 27. Last week, uh, if you were with us, if you weren't with us, we looked at Mark 8, 22 through 26, this story of Jesus healing this blind man. It's a, it's a bit of a curious passage where Jesus heals this man, but he does it in stages. He doesn't just heal the man immediately. And, and we see that the healing of this blind man, uh, it, it came right after Jesus asked his disciples, They're on this boat, and he asks the disciples, after everything that you've seen me do, after all of the miracles, after all of the exorcisms, after all of the healings, do you not understand who I am? Are you blind to who I am? And the meaning of that healing that comes immediately after that, and right before our passage, is relatively clear if we're looking at it in the midst of the context. Jesus heals this blind man in stages to show that the disciples are also spiritually blind. And just like this blind man needs Jesus to touch him so that he can see the disciples, and by extension us, we also need Jesus to touch us, for God to intervene in our lives if we are able to see spiritually. 
And as we're going to soon see in this passage, even though the disciples begin to see Jesus somewhat spiritually, they begin to to somewhat be able to see, their eyes are also at the same time still partially closed. They're still in desperate need of Jesus to come and reveal himself to them. Now, after that healing that takes place in the, the village of Bethsaida, Jesus and his disciples, they leave Galilee and they head north to a place called Caesarea Philippi, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, Caesarea Philippi was located about 25 miles. Let's go ahead and throw that map up there. Uh, was located about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It was in the midst of a pagan territory. It was named Caesarea Philippi because it was actually named after the Roman Caesar, so Caesarea, Caesar, by Herod the Great's son, Philip. All right, so real creative naming here. Caesarea Philippi, named after Caesar by Philip, Caesarea Philippi. It was an extremely pagan territory. It was actually a place in that area that was known for its worship of the emperor. So there was a shrine where where people would come and worship Caesar because they believed that he was a, a god. And it's not for nothing that Jesus asks his disciples this question, who do people say I am? What is my identity? When he's just just a few miles away from this place where people come and worship a person who claims to be a god. Who do people say that I am? And Jesus, uh, or the, the people respond in verse 28, and they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. So Jesus levels this question at his disciples. Who do people say that I am? And the disciples decide to, they they respond. They begin by sharing all of the rumors that are swirling around Jesus. And it might be surprising to us how, how different their response is compared to what we oftentimes hear today. If you were to ask someone today about who Jesus is, you'll get uh, very different responses than what the disciples said people thought of Jesus in that day. There There are different responses, but in that day, everyone knew that Jesus was special. They couldn't deny Jesus is someone special. Today, if you ask that question, and you'll hear things like Jesus was a good man, or Jesus was a good moral teacher, But at the same time, Jesus never set out to be a revolutionary, never set out to be someone who had a a, a religion named after him. Jesus is is just simply in the same category as other religious teachers like Muhammad or Zoroaster or, or Buddha or even more modern names like Mother Teresa or Gandhi. A good person, but nothing all that special. Now, the people of the first century concluded that there was actually something special about Jesus. They just couldn't understand what it was. And so the disciples are relaying all of this, of this uh, hubbub that's going on around Jesus. And they say, well, well, some people, they say that the reason you're so powerful, the reason why you are so unique is, unique is because you're actually John the Baptist. That you are a, a resurrected, a, a reanimated John the Baptist. After John the Baptist was killed by Herod, you have now come back to life. And that's why you're so special. This is actually what Herod believed after he had killed uh, John the Baptist, that, that Jesus was John the Baptist come back to life, Mark chapter 6. Others said, well, no, 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 Jesus, you're, you're not John the Baptist. You're, you're instead the, the long-awaited 
long-promised Elijah, who has returned from heaven. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, 2 Kings tells us that Elijah never actually died. He was actually taken up into heaven. And later in the Old Testament, in the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, we see this prophecy that says, before God returns to establish his kingdom on the earth, Elijah is going to come. And people begin to, to look at Jesus' ministry and they say, hey, you know what, this is it. This is what, what Malachi was talking about, that, that God is about to return. The Lord is about to return and establish his kingdom. And Jesus is God's messenger. Jesus is here to get everyone ready for God to arrive. Other people said something different. They said, you know what, Jesus isn't Elijah. He's not John the Baptist, come back to life. He's actually just one of the prophets, one of the prophets, someone like Daniel or Isaiah or Elijah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or, or a number of the prophets in the Old Testament. Now, this is actually quite a compliment as well because Jews in the first century actually believed that, that, that prophecy had stopped hundreds of years before this. And so to say that Jesus was among the prophets was, was saying, you know what, Jesus is special. This is someone who is in the, the same category as those that God has used to speak to his people throughout the ages. Of course, there were, there were other opinions about Jesus in that day and, and age that the disciples don't share here. We saw in Mark chapter 3 that Jesus' family thought he was crazy. We also saw in Mark chapter 3 that the religious leaders thought that Jesus was demon-possessed. You ask a dozen different people, and I'm sure you'd get a dozen different answers to the question, who is Jesus? Now, Perhaps surprisingly to us, Jesus doesn't seem all that concerned with correcting all of these wrong opinions of him from the crowds. As far as we are aware, he doesn't even address them. He just, it's almost like he uses that question as a springboard to what really matters to him, and that is his disciples. Who do you say that I am? Verse 29. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Earlier in this chapter, in, in verse 18, we saw that the disciples are blind. They are blind to who Jesus is. Now, how will they answer this question? Who do you say that I am? Now, I don't know about you, but uh, do you have a list of those moments when you're reading through the Bible? You have a list of those moments where you, you would just like to be there to witness it? I know, I, I'm sure we'd like to witness all of it, but, but if you had to narrow it down to just, you know, two, three different events in the Bible that you would love to, to see in, in person, for me, this would be one of them. I, I would love to, to see this moment and just see what it was like. Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am? And I wonder, how long were the disciples silent? How long were they, they were afraid to, to answer because they didn't want to be wrong? Jesus had just called them blind. Who do you say that I am? I wonder what the response was when, when Peter finally blurts out his answer, you are the Christ. Were they shocked? By Peter's audacity? Did they think that Peter had just committed blasphemy? Or 
were their eyes opened at the mention of the word Christ in the context of all that Jesus had done. Now make no mistake, as we look at this, Peter doesn't reach this conclusion on his own. He doesn't conclude this after, after taking some time to think through everything he's witnessed with Jesus. It's not as though uh, he is the, the one who is the fastest to the buzzer on Jeopardy. And if only Philip would have been a little bit faster, then we'd be talking about Philip being the leader of the early church. Philip would have been the author of 1 Peter and 2 Peter. He probably would have called them different names. No, Peter's answer is reasonable considering all that we've seen in the Gospel of Mark, but it is not something that is reached by reason. As we saw last week, Matthew makes this explicit in his parallel account. Matthew 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of the living God, excuse me. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What is it that Matthew says? Well, he says the same thing that, that Mark is saying by using an illustration, by using a, a real-life parable in this healing of the blind man in verses 22 through 26. In verses 22 through 26, we see that the only way the blind man is able to see, is given sight, is through an act of God himself, by Jesus touching him. And here we see in, in this passage that the only way that the spiritually blind, people like Peter, people like the disciples, and people like you and me, the only way that we are able to see that Jesus is truly God is because God reveals it to them. God is the one who opens the eyes of the blind, both the spiritual and the physical. Now, one of, uh, one of the reasons why this is, is so significant is because this is, uh, this is just such a, an important term in, in the, the longing of the people of Israel. One of the promises of the Old Testament that starts in the book of 2 Samuel is that there is this king who is going to come someday, and he's going to restore God's kingdom across the earth. This person is going to be called the Christ or or. The Christ is just a, the Greek way of saying the Messiah, which literally means the anointed one. And this longing, as I mentioned, starts with the, uh, with the book of 2 Samuel, this promise that's given to, to King David, who has firsthand seen how, how God has, has brought this promise to his people. And this promise continues to grow. This longing for this promise to be fulfilled, it, it continues to grow as their nation is destroyed and tens of thousands of the Jews are, are sent into exile, ripped out of their homes. And they long for God's restoration. And this longing continues to grow when they finally are restored and get to return to their promised land, and it's a shell of what God has promised. And they say, surely this is not what God meant when he promised us his kingdom would come, right? And over the centuries, the, the people of, of Israel are, are ruled and over and, and oppressed by uh, empire after empire after empire. The, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the, the, the Romans. And now they get to this point in the first century where this longing for the king would, would come and it would make everything right is this greatest longing of the Jewish people. That The thing that, that binds them all together is that someday the Messiah is coming. 
Someday the Christ will come. And there's, there's a, a number of different uh, expectations of what the Messiah would be like, but the prevailing thing that, that united all of them is that the Messiah would come, he would establish his kingdom, and he would come at the head of this army, and he would liberate the people of Israel from their oppressors. He would slaughter the Roman rulers, and he would establish God's kingdom forever. So when Peter says here that Jesus is the Christ, he is saying, you know what, Jesus, I believe that you are the one that God has promised to us for a thousand years. He says, you know what, Jesus, I believe that you are the one who is going to deliver God's people from their enemies. And as we're going to soon see, he has in mind the Romans. He believes that the greatest enemy of God's people is the, the people of Rome, the rulers of Rome, of Caesar himself. And so he believes that God is going to deliver his people through Jesus. He believes that, that Jesus is the one who is going to establish God's kingdom forever. When Jesus asks, who do people say that I am, the answers come streaming in. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. They're all nice answers. They're all answers that think that Jesus is special, but not nearly special enough. You are the Christ. Now, we can, we can conclude that Jesus agrees with Peter's uh, conclusion here based off of the lack of correction. Jesus is a, a faithful Jew to God, and, and the fact that Jesus doesn't argue with Peter and does not correct him after this, you can, you can be sure that if, if he was mistaken, if Peter was wrong, if Jesus didn't agree with him, he would surely say something about that. He would surely say, hey, Peter, where, where on earth did you come up with that? You better pray for forgiveness right now, because that's blasphemy. No, Jesus is silent. And that silence can only mean that Peter is correct, that Jesus is the Christ. And so what comes next is probably surprising to us. Verse 30, and he, Jesus, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. You have heard that I am the Christ, and be silent. He commands his, his disciples to silence. Why? Because they don't have the full picture yet. They know that Jesus is the Christ. They have been let in on that truth, and yet they do not know what that means. And when people open their mouths without understanding what they're about to talk about, that's when the chaos begins. That's when the trouble begins. And so Jesus, knowing his disciples, can see partially like a man who can see people, but like trees walking around. They can see partially, but they can't see clearly. Jesus commands them to silence because they do not understand what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. But that's what our second half of our text reveals. Second half focuses on the cross. We've looked at the king, now let's look at the cross. Immediately after Jesus' identity as the king, as the Christ, is revealed, what is it that Jesus does? Starting in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders 
and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again. Jesus admits through his silence that he is the Christ, and now he tells his disciples, who are, who are surely, because they're Jesus' best friends, they're surely daydreaming, delusions of grandeur. Oh, we're best friends with the king? They're, they're daydreaming about what this can mean for them, and then all of a sudden, Jesus stops it with the first of, of three predictions of his death and his resurrection in the Gospel of Mark. This verse, verse 31, is so rich. It's, it's so important that I just want to take it word by word, phrase by phrase, to, to see what it is that Jesus begins to teach them at this moment. It says that Jesus began to teach them, saying that the Son of Man, let's stop right there, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. This is a title that Jesus frequently uses in the Gospels for himself. It's one that we've seen him use so far twice in the Gospel of Mark. And what does it mean? Well, oftentimes in the Old Testament, the, the phrase Son of Man can simply mean human. That's what the book of Ezekiel uses it as. But also in the book of Daniel, there is this person who is referred to as one like the Son of Man, who is this figure who will come at the end as a part of God's kingdom. Daniel 7 describes the suffering of God's people at the hands of the wicked nations of the earth. And this chapter, Daniel 7, is, is written to give God's people confidence that no matter what age you live in, no matter whose hands you are suffering by, no matter how godless the nations are around you, God has not forgotten you. And in fact, Verses 9 and 10, we see God himself called the Ancient of Days. He takes his throne, and he sits on his throne, and he pronounces judgment against all of these nations who stand opposed to God and against his reign. And after that judgment is pronounced upon the nations that are opposed to God and opposed to his kingdom, we see the Ancient of Days gives the entire earth to one who is like a son of man. This one who is like a son of man is to rule over the earth forever as God's chosen king. Daniel 7, starting in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and the kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he means to bring to mind this image, this image of a king who is entrusted by God with all of the nations of the earth. In other words, he calls himself the Christ. He calls himself the Messiah without actually using that phrase. So Jesus says he is the Son of Man, but then the next word he uses is must. Must. This is a shocking word because what Jesus is about to say must take place. There is no alternative. There is no other path. This is a divine necessity. If Jesus is truly the Christ, if he is truly the Messiah, then what he is about to say 
must occur. What is it that must happen? Four events. First, he says the Messiah must suffer many things. The Messiah must suffer many things. Nowhere before has this been said in the Old Testament. Nowhere in Jewish teaching has this been said before. There is a passage in Isaiah, which we'll look at here in a moment, that talks about a suffering servant. But no one before Jesus associated the suffering servant in Isaiah with the Messiah, the one who would come as a conquering king. The Messiah is supposed to be this conquering hero, not a suffering servant. And though they did not know it at the time, Jesus has in mind Isaiah 53, this prophecy. As he looks toward the cross, what must take place, this is what he has in mind. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. All have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It was a part of the divine plan that the Messiah would suffer. Why must he suffer? Well, as Isaiah makes clear, it is to bear the punishment for the sins of God's people. I said earlier that the, there is this commonly held belief in the first century that the Messiah would come to deliver the people of God from their greatest enemy. And most people in the first century believed that that was Rome, that the greatest enemy of God's people was Rome, and yet God knows better. The greatest enemy of God's people is not Rome. It is the chains of sin that hold all of us in eternal condemnation unless Christ comes and frees us from them. And so Jesus, if he is truly the Messiah, he must suffer. Paradoxically, the kingdoms that would one day be given to the Son of Man from the Ancient of Days will only come through his suffering. Not only must the Son of Man suffer, he must also suffer at the hands of God's leader, the, peop the leaders of God's people. He must be rejected by the leaders of God's people. It is not enough for him to suffer. He has to suffer at the hands of the religious leaders of the day, a sign of our condemnation. God ironically uses the sins of humanity in order to save the sinner from their sin. Third event that he mentions, the Messiah must be killed. This is the most startling of all. It is a divine necessity that the Messiah be killed. Not just die, but be killed. The wages of sin is death. And for him to, to truly bear the curse of the sinner, for him to truly save people from their greatest enemy, then the Messiah must be killed. He must meet his own death. And yet through it all, Jesus doesn't only predict his sacrifice for the sins of men and women. He also predicts his resurrection. He also predicts his victory over sin, over death, over evil itself. Though the Messiah must suffer, though the Messiah must 
be rejected, though the Messiah must be killed. The Messiah must also be resurrected. He must also be vindicated. He must also receive the kingdoms of the earth from the ancient of days. And when Jesus has the Messiah in mind, when he is thinking of who he is, his identity, he has all of this in mind. A road that is unimaginable in its hardship. The ends in the cross, that is what awaits Jesus. If he would be king, it would only come through the cross. What's more, if we look at the first part of verse 32, it tells us that Jesus tells his disciples this plainly. Jesus isn't speaking in parables anymore. He's telling them very clearly. He wants to make it abundantly clear to his disciples that this is God's plan. This is a divine necessity, something that God has set up from before the foundation of the world. It is not a cosmic accident. The Son of Man must suffer, must be rejected, must be killed, and then must rise again. And the disciples... Well, as you probably would imagine, are shocked. They've been told their entire lives. They've, they've grown up hearing that the Messiah, when he finally comes, he's going to be a conquering king. And so to hear that the Messiah would suffer, be rejected by the people he, he comes to lead, and then be killed, well, it's just, it's just too much for him. Verse 32. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And Peter here is, is probably emboldened by his confession in verse 29. He's the one who got it right, you know, he's patting himself on the back. He, 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 he takes it upon himself to, to correct Jesus. That's never a good idea, to take it upon yourself to correct Jesus. Dick Lucas, uh, a, a former pastor, once humorously said, Peter is now going to explain the Old Testament to Jesus. That's what's taking place. He's, he's about to explain the Old Testament to Jesus. And it is unthinkable to him that Jesus can say, hey, I'm the Messiah, and then immediately afterwards say, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die at the hands of God's people. Perhaps all this is getting a bit too much for Jesus. The, the, the pressure of the crowds, maybe Jesus finally has snapped. So Peter takes it upon himself to set Jesus straight. And Jesus' response is the most shocking yet in this passage. Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And we read that and we say, poor Peter. From the highest moment in verse 29, he got it right, that Jesus is the Christ. Now to the lowest moment, verse 33, in the, just the span of four verses. What's going on here? Why does, why does Jesus call Peter Satan here? Well, it's not that, that Peter is, is suddenly possessed by Satan. Remember the beginning of the Gospel of Mark? Beginning of the Gospel of, the Mar uh, of Mark, we have Jesus' baptism in verses 9 through 11, and then immediately after that, Jesus is sent out into the wilderness by the Spirit, where he is, he is tempted by Satan for 40 days. And Mark doesn't let us in explicitly on the content of that temptation, but we can see throughout the Gospel of Mark what it, what it probably was. And, and Matthew actually does tell us what the, the pinnacle of that temptation was, Matthew chapter 4. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. Now just pause. Remember what has been promised to the Son of Man. All the kingdoms, right? So Satan shows him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he, Satan, said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. 
And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This is the, 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 the pinnacle of, of 40 days of temptation from Satan. And over and over and over, what is it that Satan is leveling at Jesus? You can be the Messiah without the cross. You can be the Messiah the way people have always dreamed, always wanted the Messiah to be, this conquering king who's going to come in and slaughter the Romans, bring Israel to world promise, prominence. You can be that Messiah. You can have it all. You don't have to follow your father's plan. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to be obedient to him. He's, he's mistaken. You see, Satan doesn't care. If Jesus is a Messiah, as long as he is a crossless Messiah. Alistair Begg, a, a pastor in Cleveland, puts it so eloquently. Satan is happy to go along with a Messiah just as long as it is not this Messiah. The evil one is happy to champion messiahs and gurus and avatars and people throughout all of history. He is happy to suggest that if we could all get together and rejoice in the company of one another, that this would be fine. The one thing that he is vehemently and totally opposed to is a messiah who dies on a cross and rises from the dead. Mark doesn't mention many of Jesus' prayers in his gospel, and so when he does, uh, they're important to pay attention to. And throughout the gospel of Mark, we see that whenever a crowd overwhelms Jesus, whenever his popularity just explodes, he retreats, and he begins to pray. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before his death, Jesus prays again, and in the content of that prayer, I think we can see the content of all of Jesus' prayers in the Gospel of Mark gives us great insight into what his greatest temptation was as well as his greatest desire. It says this, And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. What is it that Jesus' greatest temptation is? It's to be a crossless Christ. It's to find another way, to think that the Father must be mistaken. And yet through it all, what is his greatest desire? It's just to do his Father's will. More than the temptation of the enemy, more than even his own life, that is his heart's desire, to be faithful to his father. And so when he rebukes Peter here, he's saying, you're saying the exact same thing that Satan has tempted me with from the very beginning. You say that I can be a Christ without the cross, but I tell you, I cannot be king unless I am crucified. My greatest desire is to do my Father's will. And Peter, let me be honest with you. There is not a day that goes by when I don't think about the, the end of this road that I am walking. But I will do my Father's will, even though it will cost me my life. And the words 
of Jesus' rebuke here are, are particularly powerful. This is just something that's, that's just stuck with me this past week. When Jesus says, get behind me, I used to forever just think that that was just like, get away. Be gone with that type of thinking. That's not what he says. That's not what he means. Get behind me is literal. What he means is, Peter, you're in front of me. Get behind me. When I called you, I called you to follow me. I did not call you to lead me. Don't presume to know my Father's will better than I do. Are you the Christ or am I the Christ? Get behind me. The king will only be crowned through the cross. And so as we close this morning, I I just want to ask you one question. Will you follow a crucified Christ, follow a crucified king, or a crossless Christ, a crossless king? Will you follow a crucified Messiah or a Messiah who rejects the cross? I think whether we realize it or not, we are all too often guilty of Peter's exact type of thinking here when he demands that Jesus be a Messiah without the cross. We all too often do the same thing today. Just consider a few ways that we do this. When we reject the notion that the Christian life includes suffering, then we demand that Jesus be a crossless Christ. When we reject suffering for faithfulness to the gospel at all costs, even if that means that we risk compromising our faith. When we say, it's easier for me, it's better for me to compromise my faith than to suffer, then we are demanding that Jesus be a crossless Christ. That we follow a Messiah who did the exact same thing as us. That we do not follow a a king in the path of his suffering, in the path of of self-denial in the battle against our flesh. And if we do that, what place do we have in him? When we posture Christianity as primarily about helping me and not primarily about making much of Jesus, then we demand that he be a crossless Christ. If the overarching message of the Bible is not about a God who is overwhelmingly worthy of glory and honor and praise, a God who, even in all of his benevolence, has been the, the, vi- the victim of an unending rebellion from his crown jewel of creation, namely men and women. If that's not the message of the Bible, but it's instead just a list of ways for you and me to have a better life, to have better self-esteem, to get a better job, to have a happier family, then we demand that Jesus be a crossless Christ. Jesus doesn't need to go to the cross for you to have a better life for 60 or 70 years. He doesn't, but the Son of Man must go to the cross to show mercy to sinners, while also at the same time proving his Father is righteous. If the main point of the Bible is about you and me, then the cross is unnecessary. And in all this, we we fail to see that the discipleship, that following Jesus is is a call of, of allegiance 
Where is it that your loyalties lie? Is it with a crucified king or is it with yourself? And if Jesus can help you meet all of the things that you need, that you want, well then, Jesus, you're welcome to join me. But the moment you ask me to do something different, then, then I'll see you later, Jesus. Who's driving? You or Jesus? Jesus says, I am a crucified king. I carry a cross, and if you follow me, you will too. And if you decide to follow me, you must nail your flesh. You must nail yourself to that cross. Where does your allegiance lie? When we only accept Jesus on our terms and not on his, we demand that Jesus be a crossless Christ. When we think that we get to dictate to Jesus the terms we are following in the footsteps of Peter, pastor from the Twin Cities, Jason Meyer, says it like this. Let me make this as clear as I possibly can. Many people think that Jesus is calling for a commitment. He is not. A commitment means that you get to define how committed or uncommitted you are. That is why commitment language is, is so popular today. But in past generations, the language was never commitment. It was always surrender. Surrender means that you do not get to negotiate the terms or make a deal that suits you better. In surrendering, you give up your own right to define and control the terms. It means that you accept the terms of the other. You see, the crucified king does not ask for you to commit to him in the same way that you can renege on that commitment later when it's no longer convenient for you or when it gets uncomfortable. Instead, he asks for you to surrender. You are a part of a war against your creator, and as an enemy combatant, he asks for you to not commit, but surrender to him. When we presume upon God's will and confuse it with our own wants and our own desires, then we demand that Jesus be a crossless Christ. We follow in the footsteps of Peter when he foolishly explains the Old Testament to Jesus. And if your own will matters more to you than Jesus's does, Jesus says the exact same thing to you that he does to the apostle Peter. Get behind me. Follow me. Your place is not to lead me. Your place is to follow me. Are you the Christ? Where am I? The king proclaims to all who would listen that he will be crowned, but it will only come through the cross Will you follow a crucified king or a crossless Christ? Mark 8, 34, the next verse. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to surrender to you. That we would truly get behind you. That we would follow you as you have called us to do. That, that God, you would forgive us for the times where we jump ahead of you, where we try to lead you, where we try to dictate terms to you. Help us to rejoice that, that we have a, a, a king 
but not just a king who, who can defeat physical enemies, but a king who, who frees us from our greatest enemy, our own sin. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be a people that surrender in all things, that we would take up our cross daily, and that we would follow you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.